So we've been talking about kind of the general theme, okay, not, not anything bigger than that, but the general theme at this point is defending marriage, defending marriage. And there's, you know, there's a lot of angles we could kind of come at that. We could talk about the world and their negative perspective of marriage and all this kind of stuff. But really, the biggest enemies of marriage are within. It's within the marriage itself. And as much as I want to defend marriage and say, hey, this whole secular concept that marriage is just some passing trend that's outdated is completely wrong. But on top of that, we need to learn to defend our marriages from the things within our marriage. And I'm not just talking about with your spouse. I'm talking about within your own headspace, your own heart, these types of things. Now, last week when we were finishing class, we were in Galatians 6.1. And we're going to return there, but not immediately. Because if you remember at the end of last week, I was like, man, I want to get to this scripture, but I don't have time. Well, I finally have time to get to it. So go to Ecclesiastes 4, Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. And I want to I wanna kind of prep a little bit of our context here. Solomon, we believe that Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. Now, maybe we get to heaven and find out he was a teenager and at 13 he wrote this thing, but I highly doubt that's the case. The subject matter, the perspective, the tone, his confessing to things he's experienced and see, he's clearly testifying things he has sought out over the course and duration of his life. And so we believe he's towards the end of his life when he's writing these things. But also understand Solomon at the time, he understood things about God, but he didn't know about Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of the mysteries of Christianity that had not been revealed yet. And so Solomon is working with what Solomon has, okay? And you need to know that. And then the other thing I want to say is that In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. But in Ecclesiastes 4, 7, Solomon is, this is, he's not talking about married people, right? He's just talking about human beings in general. But I am applying it specifically to marriage. And it's appropriate to do so, but I just want to be true to the context. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, Solomon was thinking about married people when he wrote this, because you're going to see shortly that's not the case. But The truth of what we're going to say in Galatians is is really echoed in the Old Testament here in Ecclesiastes 4. And some of you may have already gone home and read this as I talked about last week. But here's what he says. He says, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Now, there's a lot of metaphors that Solomon uses. And that's why Ecclesiastes is difficult for a lot of people. Okay. But when he's talking about vanity, he's talking about an emptiness things that have no substance, things that have no, uh, you ever had a conversation with somebody and I, or better yet, better yet, this, this is, have you ever been to a meeting? You're at a meeting, you're already laughing. You've been to a meeting at work. It's like an hour, hour and a half long. You leave the meeting and you automatically think like, what was that even for? Like, I don't have any new information. I don't have any new tasks. That just felt like a life suck. Right? What a huge waste. You know what you're saying? That meeting was vanity. It was vanity. There was, there was nothing profitable. I didn't gain anything. I didn't learn anything. There, I didn't get any correction. There, there, was, there was nothing. It just, it was, it was vanity. Now, be careful telling your managers that his meetings are vanity. But that's, so this is what Solomon is saying. He said, 
So he's, he, in this, he's on a, he's traveling through this course of considering life and its purpose and all of these truths about life. And that's why he says, then I returned. He's, he's continuing the thing. He's not talking about, I was off and on vacation and came back physically, but he's talking about mentally. And he said, then I returned and I saw under the sun, there is, and now he's going to enter this new thinking. Okay, there is one alone and there is not a second. And he's talking about a human being who's by themselves. Okay, this is his context here. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Now, for sake of our application, I'm going to change this from child to spouse. And please don't go tell people, Brother Dan was changing the Bible in class. Okay. <laughs> but for our application, we're going to say neither child nor spouse. Okay. Yet, is there no end of all his labor? Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. We don't realize sometimes as married people the benefits of being married because they're so obvious. They're so obvious. As married couples, this is unquestionably the best environment to have children. It's unquestionably the best environment to have children. Single people, now, and I know I, I'm going to get rebuked for this. Single people cannot have kids, right? Oh, they can adopt. I, absolutely they can, but they can't have kids. Homosexual couples cannot have kids. Oh, they can, uh, I, I'm not, right? And I'm not downplaying adoption because praise God for it. Right? I, I, I'm so thankful for it. I saw this, it wasn't a documentary, but this guy was kind of giving his testimony and he had grown up in Rwanda and uh, during the time of, of a dictated leader who was doing a big genocide, a priest, a priest had smuggled 40 kids, little kids out of the country who would have been killed and grew up and he was adopted. He was talking about how he got to where he was and his adopted parents and all this other stuff. So I'm thankful for adoption, but just the simplicity of, hey, married people can have kids right now. And I know non-married people can too, but the best environment for kids is married people, one of the benefits. And notice also he goes on and he says this too. He says, yet there is no end of all their labor or his labor. Our labor can be divided up because there's two or more of us. And what's happened, we have to be careful because stereotyping can say, you should automatically have this task because of your gender. <laughs> and, and that's foolishness. I'm just going to say that that's foolishness. Some men, you know, I'm the man, so I need to run the finances. My wife runs our finances. Actually, most couples that I know, not every, most couples that I know, the wife is superior with finances and she runs them. It, I'm so thankful that I have, instead of, if I was by myself, because I've already, I've already done this, okay? If I was by myself, my finances would be a mess, right? But my wife does our finances and so they are so much better. And so, because she's taking on the finances, well, hey, I need to do some things, right? And, and it's not about, and, so, and guys, we have to be really careful because some guys kind of feel like, well, I get up and I go to work all day. Okay, well, that's one thing for the family. That's not everything. That's one thing. So what other things? And you kind of, now that you're together, you can say, hey, who's best qualified? If one in the family, like my wife hates phone calls. I don't know why. She hates that. She hates them. So the other day we had to call a couple different people and get some, get something refunded and get something adjusted. 
And I said, I'll make those phone calls. I don't love phone calls, but I don't hate them per se. Sometimes I hate the people I'm talking to. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> so it's really one of the benefits of being married is we can break things up, yeah. right? How many, I don't know if you've ever done this. How many of you have ever been to the point, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but you've been to the point where it's like, I'm so tired. I can't even pick food. Just you decide on food, bring it to me, I'll eat it. I don't even care what it is. Just, just be mindful of who I am. Don't bring me something I hate or I'm allergic to. Just bring me something, I don't even care. Isn't it so nice to have a spouse who you can turn to in those times? Because the single guy, right? He better put a ring finger or a ring on the finger of his DoorDash driver or something, right? He's in trouble. And that's what it says. And this is what it's saying about the single guy. Yet there is no end of all his labor. He will never, ever catch up with all that needs to be done in life. So what it's saying. There's huge benefits to being married. As couples, we can manage life better together and the labor that comes with it. It goes on and says, neither is the eye satisfied with riches. So there I am, single Dan. Got, you know, this high-rise apartment in, uh, in New York City. I'm filthy rich. I have all these things. Do you know why people glamorize riches? Because th- there's this concept that then I'll be able to get whatever I want. So I won't need to worry about being single because I'll be able to find, I'll be, so many women will desire me. That I'll be married. Well, anybody knows if somebody's coming to marry you for riches, that's not a great foundation for your relationship, right? Um, and I never once, never once have I suspected my wife of marrying me for money. Never one time. <laughs> never one time. It's never been a problem in our relationship. So here I am. I'm building. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but a lot of people who become rich and famous struggle so much with any kind of marriage. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. This is what it says. Neither is the eye satisfied with riches. They'll never experience. And nobody, I don't understand why people more talk about this. They will never experience the satisfaction and all of their possessions and all of their wealth and all of their fame that married people enjoy every day. Right, Amen. right, right. So we get up in the morning and we think, oh, if I just have more money, oh, if I just have more of this, and yet you already walk around with more satisfaction than people who have 100 times what we have. That's right. Right? right. That's what Solomon is saying. He said, the eye is not satisfied with riches. And he goes on and says, neither saith he, for whom do I labor? Even when he does get riches, like, what are you going to do with it? There was, I don't know if you remember, this is probably a long time ago, but when they opened Chambers Bay Golf Course in our area, one of the first Scottish-style golf courses in our area, and it's this big course, and I I don't actually like it, but, and, oh, everybody's ranting and raving. So finally, a few of my people I know who love to play golf invited me out. I said, sure, I'll go try it. You know, so we we go out this, and we're out there, we're just horrible, horrible, horrible. Uh, and we're out there playing golf and this guy comes through and he's all by himself and he's got a caddy, he rented a caddy, he's got super nice clubs, he's got really nice clothes on, you know, he's got a big old cigar, you can tell the guy at least is a trying to appear to have money, right? And he's playing all by himself and he goes, hey, do you mind if I play through? Oh, go ahead, you know, and I'm watching and I'm thinking to myself, you know, he tees off the head down there and he's gone, I'm thinking, how fun is golf? Even if you have all this money, you got a caddy, you got nice clubs, how fun is golf by yourself? But seriously, 
I can't even imagine being out because the one time, I'm going to tell you what would happen. If I play golf by myself, I'm going to tell you this right ahead of time. It would be the one time I get a hole in one. Yeah. <laughs> They're like seeing a shooting star. It just never happens. That would be the one day. Plunk and I'd be, woo, woo. I mean, I guess get my phone out and like try to, you know, record or something. I, what fun is it? You know, I, I enjoy snowboarding. I can't even imagine, you know, being up there by myself. Now, I know there's times we want to be alone. Like, I get that. But... That's because we have so much social interaction. I can't imagine starting from that side of the fence. So this guy, he's working, he's building his money, but who does he breathe his soul for? You know one thing I've learned as I get older? When Christmas comes, best group to get gifts for? Kids. Kids are awesome. Adults, we are lame. Our gifts are lame. And our reactions are lame. We are lame. We are super lame. Kids are awesome. And I'm super blessed because I have awesome nephews and nieces. And I love getting them stuff and spoiling them. And they're just, they, it's the biggest thing in the world. That's the best. $39.99, you know, $150 with tax uh, that I've ever spent. That I've ever spent. I love that they're so genuinely excited. And I'm so glad that, that some part where I went to work and earned some money can have this huge reaction. And I know that sometimes we feel like, man, we're, we're never making it. We're always behind. We're this, that, and the other. Hey, you are laboring to raise kids, right? To have a family. What else are you going to spend money on? Oh, I just wish all these things were taken care of. Hey, be thankful for what you get to bereave your soul for. And it goes on, it says, there is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. We don't, by and large, now maybe you got up this morning and you go, man, this breakfast is total travail for me. But I think it's a word we don't so much use. But what it has to do is laboring with pain. Laboring with pain. It's, it's not just that you, you did the work, but there was some suffering involved to get the work done. And he says, there's sore travail. There's, there's some labor. There's some goals we would reach after that it takes some pain. He goes on to verse nine and says, and I love this, two are better than one. Two are better than one, but they have a good reward for their labor. And I think you can understand some of this. So I'm not going to break it all down. Verse 10, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, right? So I'm out on the trail. I'm running all by myself and I fall down. You slide off the side of a hill. Well, if I become immobile, hopefully I got a cell phone because yeah. uh, I don't think the mountain lions are going to come help me. May help themselves too. I don't know. But, but if there's other runners there, right? Hey, we'll, we'll come down. We'll get you. We'll help you out or laugh at you. I don't know what kind of friends you have, but anyways, we'll, we'll go call somebody. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. Wow. Woe unto him that is alone when he falleth for he hath not another to help him up. Now I want to, I'm not done with Ecclesiastes, but I want to pause there and I want to go to Galatians chapter six and verse number one. And this is what it says. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, there are two words I want to focus on here. Number one, overtaken, and two, fault. This is hard for us to process, but this is, this, what has overtaken this person is their fault, <laughs> right? 
Like, you started drinking and now you're an alcoholic. You started smoking and I'm using very generic, general kind of types, but now you're overtaken. What does it mean to be, we know what a fault is, but what does it mean to be overtaken? And this is super, oh my soul, this is super important. Like, if you're sleeping, just wake up and get this part. (laughs) To be overtaken means that it now has come to a point that you can't get out by yourself. Now, when you think about that, just like with running, I fall off the side of the hill or whatever. I cannot get out by myself. I've been overtaken. It's bigger than me. And that's where in our context of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, you know, hey, if one falls, he's got someone to to help pick him up. Well, in marriage, as we go through life, when depression comes, when temptation comes, when addiction comes, who do we have to help us overcome faults? And this is surprising to me. This is a part of marriage that's really not talked about yet. One of the most critical, one of the most critical. And that's why it goes under the heading of defending our marriages, because one of the ways we're working to protect our marriages is we're helping with a spouse. And I'm so thankful for God's word because, well, look at Galatians 6, 1 again, brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, ye which are spiritual, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one restoration is the goal, right? Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? There's this married couple, and they're traveling through life, and somebody makes a bad decision. The wrong decision. It's a fault. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. They made a choice. And it's a fault. And at some point, whether... The first time or the hundredth time, it overtakes this person. Now they're stuck in it. Who is the rescue team? The person who's not at fault. Who just complicated this marriage? Who potentially betrayed the other one? Who made the mess? Who caused the problem? Who caused the tears? Right? Now, whose job is it to rescue them? Well, the person with a broken heart sometimes. Well, that's not fair. That's not in our society, in the world's economy, the world goes, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm out, right? Right? You you keep your own mess, but we're not talking. If you're going to talk marriage, where's marriage come from? We talked about discovering discovering marriage. Where did marriage come from? God's economy. Right. So you want to fix marriage, you got to go to God. Now, if you're going to start, you know, I'm going to take God's concept of marriage, but then I'm going to execute it according to the world, you're going to execute your marriage, right? But if you go and you say, okay, I want God's concept of marriage. Okay, so what's God's concept of how do we deal with this? Well, you which are spiritual. Now, I want to point a couple things out. It doesn't say you who are without fault, okay? Because sometimes... Both can be at fault in these scenarios. It doesn't say you are without fault. It doesn't say you who have all the answers. It doesn't say any of those things. How many times have we gone to help our spouse with a problem we've never faced before? I like, I've never faced this. I never had to think about that. I don't, even, I don't even know where to start. But the key is, now this is important, spiritual. Spiritual. And this is why I keep from the beginning, I have just hammered this anvil and I will 
God is the third member of our marital relationship. That's right. And I do understand completely that God is not a physical human being. And I'm not, I'm not trying to relate it that way. But in the garden, it was Adam and Eve and God. Yeah. Right? That's how God designed it. And to this day, it has to be, whether we like it or not, it has to be you, your spouse, and God. And if no one in the, think about this, if no one in the relationship is spiritual, no one's getting restored. No one's coming out of the ditch. That's That's a hard fault. And I've said so many times, wives, the greatest thing you can do for you and your family is help do your best to keep your husband spiritual. Now, you can't be spiritual for another person. You can't nag someone to Jesus. You can't shame someone to Jesus. Neither should you try. But supporting, and, and I, I, I mentioned this last week, I know wives who do the exact opposite. They support, condone activities that are poisoning their husbands. Why would you do that? You're, you're destroying your hope for restoration in your own family. You've got to be so careful about that. So it's the spiritual, but you which are spiritual, restore such an one in spirit of meekness. Restoration. Restoration is a tricky problem. I mean, you think about this, okay? So how did we get to the place where somebody's been overtaken? Well, somebody made some carnal decisions. They weren't walking in the spirit. They made some carnal decisions. Now you got a mess. And they are in a position they can't get themselves out on their own. Right? So now the other person... Most of the time, a.k.a. for under this heading, not all of life, but under this heading, this problem, the innocent party, they have to come, throw the chain in, pull this person out. But now watch this. And I mentioned this before. The person, it's not every time, not every time, but the person with the broken heart, the innocent person, couldn't they say, what about me? I'm busy trying to help you while you're all jacked up, but I'm hurt. Where's my help? Who's trying to take care of me? Now, please hear me and hear me really well. You got to stop and figure out what your goal is. If your goal in marriage is to level the playing field and equal the score, meaning you suffer as much as I suffer, if that's your goal, then restoration is not your goal because you don't get both. I have told not, not just one person. I have told multiple people. You are right. Your spouse is wrong. But if you want to keep a marriage together, here's what you're going to have to do to help the wrong person. And I really, if I could, I'm going to kind of side trip here. Please be careful where you get your marital counseling when it comes to this subject particularly. I, it baffles me at the stupid stuff And that is the polite word I'm using that people say to couples who are dealing with problems and are seeking restoration. It baffles me. I know from personal experience, okay, women who cry secretly at the holidays because of the divorce they suffered 30 plus years ago. Now you can sit around and say, well, you just need to get over it. But if you think you're going to walk away and just forget the past, you are in a strong state of self-delusion. Now, 
Can marriages get to the place where there is no hope for restoration? You have to decide for yourself if you think that's a possibility or not. I've seen a few messes <laughs> and I like what one man said, you can't unscramble eggs. You got to decide, you know, where you're going from there. But I just want to say this. At some point, you have to decide what's my goal. And too many times the flesh wants to get in. That's why you have to be spiritual. The flesh wants to get in and say, uh, we need to level the playing field. I've cried the tears. And when I was crying, it didn't even seem like you cared. You're screaming at me while my heart's broken and you're the bad guy or bad woman, whatever the case is. Okay. Right. You got to decide what you want. And at some point, if you're like, you know what? I just, and I know this is what we all want. Let me tell you what we all want. I want the pain to go away. Yes. Right, right, right. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. The number one reason for divorce. I'll tell you the number one reason for divorce. People want pain to go away. Right. It's to me, it's like long distance running. You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to run this race. It's, you know, it's a half marathon, a marathon, whatever. And you're like, you just ahead of time, you know, man, I got this goal. What did you set out to do? You set out to finish the race. Did you not? Like, that's the goal. That's why I got, I got in the race to finish the race. All I could dream about that finish line. Just that's why I got into this thing. But then you start running. And after so many miles, you realize, oh, my ankle's starting to hurt, right? This knee's starting to hurt. And I'm dehydrated a bit. And you're starting to, all of a sudden, pain creeps in. And then a second goal creeps in. Instead of, hey, finishing this race is the goal. Now it's like, I just want this pain to stop. I just don't want to. And and if you're not careful, this is what will happen. The one goal will affect the other goal. Because then your mind starts saying, you know, if I just stop running, the pain will go away. Or at least will subside substantially. So instead of finishing a race, now you're being tempted that the best thing to do is abandon the race. Even though you got in the race to finish the race and win the race, now because of the pain, and we do the same thing as married couples. You can't, it feels like, please hear me, it feels like you can't have one civil conversation with your spouse. And it wrenches you inside every single day when you're with them or not with them that your marriage is in this state of existence. And what is, what's going on inside you? I just want the pain to stop. And that's where so often the word divorce comes into play. People aren't, it's not because they ever stopped loving their spouse. You may feel that way. You may feel that way, but it's not that they ever stopped loving their spouse. It's not that they ever gave up and didn't care about marriage. They just got to the point and said, I just can't take the pain. I'm tired of the pain. And that's why we have to seek after restoration and not retaliation. Because restoration is about restoring things so we can continue running the race together. Right? The defense of marriage. But if it's about settling the score, retaliation, and all this other stuff, you know, and now now let me say this too. Sometimes when we restore people and we restore the relationship and we restore communication, we can, and please hear this, we can circle back and say, hey, listen, at an appropriate time when that marriage is strong and healthy again, hey, you know, when we went through this, these things hurt me deeply. Now, this isn't, I'm trying to settle the score. It's I'm trying to get, I'm trying to move past. You weren't the only one who suffered during this thing. And I got some baggage too from you. And we need to circle back because as much as we were trying to help lift the baggage off you and recover you, now we got to work at recovering me. 
Right? Right? Isn't that, isn't that fair? <laughs> Brother Dan, why are you talking about this stuff? Because it's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about a bunch of other fluffy stuff, but it's not going to help anybody. So two is better than one for the purpose of restoration. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a, in a fault. Now, one of the things you and I got to do every day. Listen, listen, listen. One of the things you and I got to do every day is have our fault finder out. Not fault finding in other people, but I mean fault finding like looking out for potholes in the road coming up. I personally don't like the facade that a lot of married couples put up about, oh, I, you know, I, I only, my, I don't even care about anybody else and all this other stuff. That's how our hearts should be. But we need to openly and honestly be able to say, hey, temptation is out there. Right. Temptation with my name on it. Right. And I need to be wise about avoiding those things and, and working together. So important. Notice he says here, if you would, back in, in Ecclesiastes, and I'll read it to you, but back in Ecclesiastes, he said, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Some of the most, diff- now please hear this, please hear this. Some of the most difficult problems in marriage can only be solved together. Okay. And I'm going to answer a question that's in some of your minds, likely. I'm sorry I pointed over here. I'm not, I have no one in mind. I realized that when I was like, oh, I'll be there. I'm just eating eggs. What's your problem? Um, one, we have to admit, hey, I've been overtaken. I've been overtaken. I got an issue in my life, whether it's discouragement, addiction, whatever it would be, carnality. You know, I, I have an issue in my life that's overtaken me and I cannot overcome it alone. I have to have my spouse. And this is a, it is a mega humbling experience to have to go to your spouse and confess a fall. Oh man, if you've never done it, wow. Then you're keeping secrets. <laughs> man, I, I, I know what that tastes like. I'm not a big fan of it. I, did, I realized when I was doing it, I don't ever want to do this again, but I needed to because I got to be able to say, Hey, I've been overtaken. I need some help. I can't, I can't deal with this alone, whether it's internal or whatever. I can't deal with this. Now, this is important too. What happens when you and your spouse can't communicate? You guys have hit a tough time. You can't communicate. You're, you have to use a similar pattern where you're saying, now we have been overtaken, whether communication or whatever, and we have to find the external help to help our marriage. This is another classic crossroads where many people choose the wrong path and just destroy their marriage. I'm at a point where I don't know me and my spouse can't, we're not in a place to handle this together yet. You will, but not yet. We're having trouble communicating. There's been hurt. There's been confusion. There's anger. There's all this kind of stuff that wells up. So how are we going to work this out? Well, now we've got to look for external help. Number one, where, where is the number one external help you should be looking for in your marriage? Yes. Ye which are spiritual. Your daily connection to God. And it baffles me how some people, and I'm not trying to be mean, but they have this problem with their spouse. They can't speak to their spouse, but they don't speak to God about their spouse. No one anywhere can do more for changing and helping your spouse than God himself. You should be your spouse's number one prayer warrior. The Bible says that Job got up every day and offered sacrifice for his 10 kids just in case, in their heart, That's right. secretly, they would decide to curse God. Secretly. Wow. 
And yet some of us can't even scratch a prayer together for our spouse once a day. Come on, Come on up, <laughs> Right? And listen, okay, now, I'm going I'm to take my own advice. I said this earlier. I'm going to take my own advice. I cannot shame you into spiritual things. It's not going to work. And I'm not trying to. But I'm trying to be really logical and put it out there and go, you know what? You're right. You're right. I, why should I expect bigger results spiritually in my spouse's life when I'm not advocating for them? And this is a great thing. Share prayer requests with each other. Right? Hey, pray for this. Pray for this. All the time I'll tell my wife, hey, pray for my thought life. Man, my, my mind feels just crazy this week. You may say, I'm dealing with a lot of anger this week. Help me with that. Maybe, hey, honey, I'm dealing with a lot of discouragement this week. Would you pray for me? Be active in praying for your spouse, even if it's for selfish reasons. <laughs> pray for your spouse. First place for help outside of you too, God. You which are spiritual. If you're not spiritual, get spiritual. <laughs> get spiritual. Do what you got to do. Don't walk in the word. Don't ever pray. Struggle to attend services. Well, if you take the spiritual out of Galatians 6.1, how's the formula going to work? You go, well, I'm not good enough to be spiritual. Our God is so great. He loves us and cleans us up and cares for us no matter who we are or where we're at. And I praise God. for That's why we sing his praises every week because he's so great to us. And then the last thing is I need to find, and this is so important, I need to find kind of someone's qualified, but I need to find the person who is, if I need external help, I need the qualified help that's safe. And so often we have to be so careful because we go to the wrong people. We go to the wrong people. How many have ever had somebody tell you, please don't tell anybody this secret? <laughs> Everyone here has, and you're lying if you haven't raised your hand. We've all come across that in our lives, and yet we all know people do it. I'm going extra innings. Have the card director be mad at me. We had this lady, she was going through a lot in her personal life. We didn't know it at the time. And we had her come in. She wanted to volunteer at the church. She came in the office and we had her working on the project with one of our younger ladies who was interning. So we got this girl who I think she was like 19 at the time. Maybe, maybe not even that. And there's this older woman who's like 50s, late 50s or something like that. Well, they're putting books together. Or something. I don't remember what the task was. They're doing these. And all of a sudden, this older lady just emotionally dumps. She can't hold it anymore. And she's, there's this poor 19-year-old girl. And like, oh, this is happening. That's happening. And all these problems. And all these poor girls want to go on and off to do. So I'm sitting at my desk. And all of a sudden, this, this like 19-year-old with these huge eyes shows up at my office door. Brother Dan, I need to talk to you. <laughs> Mrs. So-and-so just said all this stuff to me. And I said, honey, it's just because she's under so much that we didn't know about. She's under so much she can't hold it back. She can't hold it back anymore. It just, she starts gushing. And we got to go to the right people. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Hopefully we'll get into that. But I want you really to think about this week. Two is better than one. Two is better than one. And we got to work on what's the goal of my relationship. And I know, listen, I know the voices there saying, if you will just give up, this pain will stop. But I want to tell you, it doesn't, that's a lie. It doesn't stop. It changes to a different form. That's all it does. And the only thing you actually do is take away hope for restoration. That's all you really do. And, and I understand that there are certain scenarios and blah, blah, blah. But man, I, I really want to encourage you. Restoration. Let's get back. Let's get things back to the way they should be. And I remember, and I've confessed this before, and I'm not trying to rummage through my marriage or anything, but 
I remember talking to my wife one day, it just my brain. So it, sometimes it, it asks questions and things before it's thought them through. And that's a very unhealthy thing for a brain to do. And I was like, honey, when do you think the best time in our marriage was? Because we, you know, we, at the time we've been, we were coming up on 20 years. And I'm like, when was the best time in our marriage? You know, we realized we both agreed a decade before, a decade. We've spent 10 years of not the, what have we been doing? And it, it just felt like it'd been going downhill on, in certain areas. And I'm like, my soul, there, that doesn't give a lot of hope for the future, right? Right? But I want to testify, I want to testify to you. For the last few years now, my wife, if you ask her separately, hopefully she'll say this. Uh, <laughs> we are in the best time of our entire marriage. Because I want to tell you this. Some of the reason a lot of you, if you sit down, and you, this may not be healthy for you, but if you sit down and ask that question, you're going to answer years ago. And here's why you're going to answer it. Ignorance ignorance you hadn't been through you didn't know about the monsters yet ignorance was bliss but i want to listen i want to tell you if you will keep fighting for restoration god's way there's a time coming where you'll say this is now the best time in our marriage and we know where all the monsters live we've climbed all the hills fought all the dragons and this is the best, and it's not because we're just too stupid to know what bad is coming. There's hope. There is hope in relationship together. Two is better than one, and, but we have to fight the right way and defend our marriages. There you go.